Chapter Twenty of the Silver Bullet by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reverend Pentland Corn. Herrick did not take all that Santiago had said for gospel truth. The Mexican was too clever and too bold a man to give in so tamely, seeing what was at stake. For the moment he had recognized that he was powerless, and had surrendered until such time as he could recover his position. Dr. Jim could have stopped all his machinations by having him arrested for the assault on Stephen, but he did not wish to bring the police into the matter at present. In the first place, so many lies had been told about the case, there were so many things to be explained that he was not sure of his ground. And for the sake of Stephen, he did not wish to create a scandal. Colonel Carr's reputation was quite bad enough without making it worse. Therefore, the only thing that Jim could do was to have the two scamps watched. Certainly, they might warn Frisco to clear out. But whatever Santiago did, Herrick felt sure that Joyce would not counsel such a course. The little man knew well enough that his safety depended upon Herrick, and would do nothing which might jeopardize his safety. The Mexican might plot and plan, but Joyce would certainly obey orders. Also, they could do little if closely watched. Herrick then gave orders to Kidd and Belcher, and returned the next day to Saxon. If anything important occurs, he said to the ferret, you can wire me. But we are in the dark, protested Belcher, if you would only. No, Belcher, interrupted Jim sharply. We settled all that before. All you have to do is to see if either of these men tries to leave the country, or if they meet a man who looks like a sailor. Then you can wire me. I shall come up to town at once and deal with the matter myself. What might be the sailor's name? It might be anything, replied Herrick dryly. It won't do, Belcher. You are not to know my aims until I choose to let you know. If you will not work with me on these terms, just say so, and I'll get someone else. I'll do whatever you like, Dr. Herrick, said the ferret submissively, and went away to fulfill his duties devoured with curiosity. In spite of his regard for Dr. Jim, the man wanted to make money out of him. He therefore determined to learn all he could about Joyce and the Mexican, and treat with them on his own account if he gained any knowledge likely to be useful from a blackmailing point of view. The ferret and his partner were rogues in grain. They did not even keep faithful to their employer, or to each other, for the matter of that. Honor amongst thieves was not a proverb practiced in the Strand office. Herrick had another talk with Joyce before he returned to Saxon. The little man had gone back to his flat, having him all to himself, and the yoke of Don Manuel being to some extent broken, Dr. Jim was able to deal more easily with him. He promised the poor fool that if he remained faithful and did not intrigue any more with his father or the Mexican, that he should be given a new chance of leading a clean existence. Indeed, Herrick spoke so seriously that he reduced Joyce to tears, and to many protestations that henceforth he would be all that was good. 
it was not improbable that he would mend. He had had a severe lesson and had narrowly escaped getting into the clutches of the law. With a less kindly man than Herrick, his position would indeed have been a serious one. He therefore appreciated the kindness accorded to him, or said he did, and Jim departed satisfied that so far as Robin was concerned, he had nullified the schemes of Santiago. In this way he hoped to take the heart out of the conspiracy against Stephen and Stephen's money. The next person to deal with is Corn, he said to himself, as he got into the train. He's another fool, if not worse, as Manuel told me. I seem to have dealt with nothing but fools and scoundrels ever since I started out on that unhappy walking tour. Colonel Carr was evil in his life, and he has left an evil influence behind him. Later on, Dr. Jim reproached himself for blaming the walking tour. If it had brought him into trouble, it had also given him a promise of future happiness. But for that walk, he would never have met Bess. After all his anxiety in London, Herrick wanted to have a quiet hour with the girl who was the light of his eyes. Jim did not call her this, for he was not a romantic person, but he felt that he would like to be with her, and he was anxious to know what she had discovered about the pistol. Bess had not sent him a report as she had promised, and Herrick concluded that she had discovered nothing worth the sending. All the same, he wished to see her at once, but he put off the happy hour. There was business to be done before pleasure could be taken. It was after nine o'clock before Herrick arrived at the Beelminster station. He had not sent for the cart, as he did not wish Stephen to know of his arrival at present. Dr. Jim had made up his mind to call in and get the truth out of the clergyman before returning to the Pines. Therefore, determined to get his plans in thorough order, Jim left his portmanteau at Beelminster to be sent on the next morning and himself walked to Saxon. In due time he arrived at the rectory and was shown into the rector's study, where he found the man himself. The Reverend Pentland looked nervous at this untimely visit, and more so as he saw that Dr. Jim was not in evening dress and must therefore have come straight from town. Corn's conscience was uneasy, and every untold event fluttered his nerves. However, he composed himself with a strong effort and asked Herrick to be seated. "'You have just come from town, I see,' he observed with a nervous glance. "'Yes, and I want particularly to have a chat with you before going to the Pines. And on a painful subject, Mr. Corn.' The rector shivered and turned even paler than usual. "'Is there anything wrong?' he asked faintly. "'Let me know the worst at once.' "'Why should you expect any worst, Mr. Corn?' The man shook his head and passed a handkerchief across his dry lips. "'I want to know the worst,' he said again, without heeding the question. "'I can see by your face that there is something wrong which concerns me.' Herrick gave a short laugh. Upon my word, you are a singularly indiscreet man, Mr. Corn, he said. You give yourself away right and left. When I met you, first of all, 
you behaved in a foolish manner. Now you are very little better. You are a clergyman and a gentleman with an assured position. Why don't you assume the defensive and ask what I mean by such speeches as I have made, as I am now making? Because I would have to tell you all about myself sooner or later, said Corn in a low voice. You are a strong man, and I want to confide in someone like yourself. I am not strong. I was once, but something happened. He sighed and nodded. A terrible thing happened. Herrick wondered if he was about to confess to the murder. However, he did not wish to hurry the confession, which he saw Corn was on the point of making. He wondered that such a smart and soldierly-looking man should own himself to be so weak. I am quite at your service, he said coldly, and as for my part, Mr. Corn, I do not think you have used either myself or Mr. Marsh over well. In what way? This time Corn really did look amazed. You told a lie to shield Don Manuel. It was the Mexican who struck that blow at my friend, and you knew it. How could you, a gentleman and a clergyman, stoop to shield a would-be murderer? Corn rose to his feet and braced himself to a great effort. You are right, he said frankly, but I was compelled to such a course. Herrick nodded. I know. I have heard all from Santiago. Corn recoiled. He told you? He grasped, sitting down. Yes, he told me how he held you in his power, how he forced you to lie for him. I made him tell me the truth. Now I wish to hear the confirmation of his story from you. It is true, it is true, cried Corn desperately. If he told you that I was a gambler, that I owed money, it is true. I don't mean that so much, said Herrick sharply, as to the accusation he makes against you of having murdered Colonel Carr. The clergyman, who had been leaning his head on his arms in an agony of grief, looked up suddenly with a bewildered stare. Santiago said that about me, he demanded. It is not true. It is the foulest lie he ever spoke, cried Corn with indignation. I am bad in many ways, Dr. Herrick, yet I have my excuses, as you shall hear. But as the murdering Carr, I did nothing of the sort. How was it then that Don Manuel obtained from you the pistol with which the crime was committed? Corn looked round the room and went to the door. Opening this, he looked out for a moment to see that the coast was clear. Then he shut it, locked it, and came back to the fireplace, looking more like a ghost than ever. I picked it up, he said in a whisper. Yes, on the lawn of the pines. I knew that Colonel Carr had been shot with it, but I dare not tell. Why not? Were you afraid of being inculpated? No. Corn hesitated and wiped his face. I must tell you, he said with a gasp, there is no help for it. The secret has weighed on my soul until I can bear it no longer. It was a woman who shot Carr. Herrick rose slowly, hardly believing his ears. A woman? he echoed. Corn nodded and whispered again. Mrs. Marsh, he said. That, said Herrick, is a lie. It is the truth, 
I swear it's the truth. She shot Carr because he was about to disinherit her son. If you will sit down, I will tell you all I know. I am glad that it has come to this, panted Corn, wiping his forehead. I am glad that I can tell you. The secret has nearly killed me. Did you tell Santiago? asked Dr. Jim, seated again and much bewildered. No, I told no one. Santiago, on the evidence of that pistol, really believed that I was guilty. But it is a lie, a lie. He used it to force me to hide his wickedness. I protested my innocence, but he would never believe me, and that because I refused to say who was guilty. Herrick placed his hands on the shoulders of the agitated man and forced him into the chair. Come, he said in a more friendly tone. You are not so weak or so bad as I thought, Corn. You took the blame on yourself. Oh, I know you protested your innocence to Santiago. Still, he would always think you guilty. He is not the man to believe that any human being would shield another. Why did you shield Mrs. March? For her son's sake, said Corn, and for the sake of Ida Endicott. Herrick stared. What has she got to do with it? I love her, said Corn, in a low voice, shading his eyes with the palm of his hand. But she told me that her whole life was wrapped up in Stevens. If he knew that his mother had killed Carr, he is quixotic enough to throw up the whole fortune out of shame. Then he would not be able to marry Ida, and her heart would be broken. It is for this reason that I held my peace. Yet you let Stephen be assaulted, said Herrick. His death would have ruined the life of Ida just the same. I did not know about the assault until after it was committed, said Corn quickly. Then Santiago. But I cannot tell you the story in scraps like this. Better let me tell you all about myself and what led to my present weakness. Then you will appreciate what I have gone through. Herrick nodded. It is best so. Go on. You can safely confide in me, Corn. I only retain the right to use such information as may clear up the mystery of this murder. Corn seized his arm. You will not tell about Mrs. Marsh, he panted. Not without consulting you. Be certain, Corn, that I am too true a friend to Stephen to do anything harmful to him. But there is much at stake, and I must be allowed to use my own judgment. You can rely on me. I am sure of that, said the clergyman in admiration. You are a strong-willed man. I was strong myself once, in a way. But my crime... Crime? I thought you had not killed Carr. No, said Corn in a low voice. But I have the blood of a fellow creature on my hands for all that. And he buried his face in his hands. I judge no man, said Herrick, after a pause, but do not tell me anything that may render it difficult for me to keep sacred your confidence. Oh, there's nothing you need fear from that, replied Corn drearily. It was an accident. Wait till I recover myself. The man took a turn up and down the room. After five minutes, he resumed his seat and spoke composedly. My name is not Corn, he began. Langham is my name, Francis Langman. I was in the army. 
So Bess Endicott said, nodded Herrick. Corn smiled faintly. Yes, I let that slip one day when she was talking of my looking like a soldier. But she does not know my real name. No one does, save the bishop who gave me this living. Ah, he was a good man. He's dead now. I have to thank him for saving my reason and my life. How was that? asked Herrick, settling himself. I was quartered in the West Indies, said Corn after a pause, and I there had a friend, who joined about the same time as I did. I need not tell you his name or the number of my regiment. All you need know is the simple story of my misery. My friend and I were always together. They called us David and Jonathan in the regiment. Well, here Corn nerved himself to a tremendous effort. We were out shooting ducks. We were parted amongst the reeds, on the border of the lake. I thought I saw the brown back of a duck through some reeds. Without thinking, I fired, and I killed my friend. Oh, my God! When the man's head went down on the table, Herrick clasped him by the shoulder. He was profoundly moved by their miserable story, and could well understand how once a strong man had been changed by this tragic deed into a weak, tremulous creature. He did not say a word of comfort. It would have been useless. After a time, Corn recovered himself and continued in a dull, hard voice. There was an inquiry. I was exonerated from all blame. But I knew that I had killed my friend, that I had the blood of a fellow creature on my hands. I left my regiment and sent in my papers. Under another name, I returned to England. All my relations were dead, save my uncle, the bishop. He tried to calm me. I would not be calm. I would have committed suicide, but I felt that it was my duty to suffer for my crime. Not a crime, interposed Herrick gently. An accident. Yes, it was. Yet, I can't help. But no matter. I took to gambling to drown my remorse and grief. I had never touched cards before. They became a passion with me. Other men take to drink. I took cards, but all in vain. When the excitement of the game was over in the morning, then my misery came back. I went to my uncle. He implored me to find peace in the bosom of the church, for he did not look upon me as the guilty wretch I was. I consented. As Pentland Corn, I studied for the church. I became a priest, a curate, and worked in the slums of the East End. I left off gambling and felt more at ease, thinking I was expiating my folly. In an evil hour, after years of hard work, my uncle gave me this living. I took it. Shortly afterwards he died. Then I realized the folly of accepting a charge where I had time to brood. The past came back to me and I took to gambling again. That was weak, Corn, said Herrick decisively. I know it was, but I was in a manner driven to it. There was little work to do here. Society had no attractions for me. Then I had long, long hours of agony. I wanted to forget the past, and... You should have gone back to the East End. Corn nodded. I should have done many things, he said bitterly. But that accident had taken all the manhood out of me. 
I drifted, drifted. Well, to make a long story short, I took to going away to London at times to indulge in gambling and forget my sorrow. I know, and you went to that club in Pimlico. I did, Santiago, told you that, I suppose. I met him there. In an incautious moment, I told him about Colonel Carr. Then I heard of the grudge he bore against him. Do you know the story of that expedition? Most of it. I warned Colonel Carr against his enemy. He laughed, feeling safe in his tower. Then, learning that I was fond of cards, Carr made me play with him. It was said I went to the Pines to convert the man. It was to gamble. So low had I sunk. Herrick shook his head. But he was so sorry for the man that he could not blame him for his folly. Corn resumed. Night after night I gambled there. Also I went to London and met Don Manuel at the Pimlico Club. So life went on. And now for the story of that night. Here Corn drew his chair closer to that of his listener and continued his revelation in a whisper. I knew Mrs. Marsh very well and saw much of her, he said. She was a very violent and terrible woman. I know that, said Herrick, remembering his own experiences. Oftentimes I tried to check her wrath. She would call and see Carr, and they always fought when they met. I think Carr enjoyed tormenting her, for he never forbade her visits. He was a wicked man, Herrick. One of the worst, judging from his reputation. Yet he had his good points. He helped me with money to pay my gambling debts, not twice, but thrice. Did he know your story? No, I could not tell it to him. He would only have laughed at my remorse. It would have seemed foolish to him. He thought that I was simply a profligate clergyman, and liked me for that very reason. Oh, I do not defend myself, Herrick. I sank low, very low, but my excuse must be the sorrow of my life. It took all the courage and self-respect out of me. But after this, I shall give up this charge and return to the East End. There I will work hard and forget my folly, my sorrow. The gambling will lose its hold over me then. I think you will be wise. Go on. Well, on that day of the murder, Mrs. Marsh came to me in a rage. She had heard through Frisco, he had spoken in one of his drunken fits, that Carr was going to disinherit her son. She went to see him from this house. I tried to stop her, but she would go. They had a furious quarrel in the afternoon, and Mrs. Marsh swore that she would kill Carr if he disinherited Stephen. She did not kill him in the afternoon. No, because he was alive after five o'clock. Someone saw him at the window of the tower. Well, Mrs. Marsh dined with me. After dinner, she worked herself into a rage. Carr had laughed at her on that afternoon, and had said that he would do what he liked with his money. In fact, from all she told me, he treated her like a brute. He was one, you know, Herrick, and Jim nodded, remembering the torture of the Indian. Stephen was to come for her, said the rector wearily. The telling of his story fatigued him. Somewhere about nine o'clock, she was to meet him at the car arms and take the bus back to Beelminster. After eight, she went out. 
It was so early that I wanted to stop her. She refused. At nine, Stephen arrived. He could not find his mother. She was not at the car arms. I then guessed that she had gone to see Carr again. In my fear, lest she might do something dreadful, I blurted out my suspicions. At once, Stephen understood what I meant. He went himself to the pines. I waited for some time. Then I was in such a state that I followed. The house was all ablaze, but I heard nothing. This was about half-past nine or a quarter to ten. I went up as far as the door. On the steps, I picked up that pistol, which I guessed had been used by Mrs. Marsh. I slipped it into my pocket, then I returned home. I also went to the car arms and learned that Stephen and his mother had caught the bus some time after nine o'clock. I tried to think that Mrs. Marsh had not shot the man. I returned here to think it out. Santiago was waiting for me. He had come by the last bus from Beominster and had been waiting since nine. In fact, he came just after I went after Stephen. It was really a quarter past nine when he came. Do you think he had been to the Pines? asked Herrick keenly. I do not know, but you can learn that from the busman who drove him here. I did not inquire myself. He had come to get me to take him to see Carr. I refused, and without thinking, I threw the pistol on the table. I was much agitated, and he saw that. He got out of me that I had been to the Pines. After looking at the pistol, he said he would go to the Pines himself. I refused to let him go. After a time, I gave him some money and persuaded him to go. I drove him to Heathcroft Station in my cart. He took the pistol with him. I did not notice that he had done so. In a day or so, when the murder became known, he wrote and accused me of being the criminal. I denied it. But he had read the report of the death and how the wound had been inflicted by an old-fashioned weapon. When he came here with Joyce, he insisted that I was guilty. I said that I was not, but would say nothing about Mrs. Marsh. It was this knowledge that he used to make me hold my tongue about the assault on Stephen. What could I do, Herrick? said Corn piteously. Appearances were against me. Santiago could prove that I had the pistol. I had been to the Pines, and I owed Colonel Carr money. Also, there was my own story. Had I been arrested, all would have come out. No, I had to do what Santiago told me. Hmm, said Jim. I can see your dilemma. And what about Mrs. Marsh? Did Stephen suspect her? No. He told me that he had gone to the Pines, looked at the house. He saw nothing and heard nothing. He therefore returned to the car arms and found his mother waiting for him. She said that he had missed her and evidently invented a story which satisfied him. No, Herrick, I do not think Stephen suspected his stepmother. But she shot the colonel, I am sure. She left my house in a rage, and she several times threatened to kill him. Then she was not at the car arms. After nine, the man was shot. Herrick nodded. Did you ask Mrs. Marsh to explain? No. She fell ill, if you remember, and took to her bed. I could not bring myself to see her. I therefore held my tongue. 
and I should have continued to do so, but that Don Manuel threatened me. Therefore I determined to tell you all when I could. What you heard from him is in the main true, but I did not kill Carr. The blood of one human being on my hands is enough. Do you despise me, Herrick? Dr. Jim rose and took the hand of the unhappy man. My friend, I pity you from the bottom of my soul. If you had only found someone to advise you, all this trouble would not have occurred. That is true, but my uncle, who knew the story of my misery, was dead. I shrank from telling anyone. But when I got to know you and saw how strong and self-reliant you were, and recognized all the goodness of your heart, I felt that I could safely confide in you. You will not tell anyone what I have told you? Need you ask me that, said Herrick, with a hearty shake of the hand. Of course your secret is safe with me. And about Mrs. Marsh? I shall see into that, said Herrick gravely. Remember Santiago is a dangerous man. I do not know what trouble he may yet cause. If necessary, I must use what you have told me about the crime. But you may be sure that for Stephen's sake and for yours, I shall be circumspect in my dealings with the matter. As for you, my friend, wait here until this mystery is quite solved, then go back to the East End or to the Wildlands as a missionary. Yes, said Corn with a sigh, I know. Only of that way shall I find rest. The two men shook hands and parted very good friends. Corn returned to his study, intensely relieved by the sympathy and by the fact that he had someone to share his secret. Herrick walked home to the Pines, wondering at the perplexity of the case. He thought less of Corn than of Mrs. Marsh. Suddenly he stopped. I see, he said to himself, this was why Mrs. Marsh poisoned herself with an overdose of chloral. Poor woman. End of chapter 20